Welcome to Beijing's Daily News. Today is the 28th of October, 2022. We'll be covering the necessity for an autonomous monetary policy for Ethereum's long-term growth, the need for tokens in DeFi protocols, and the revenue evil curve. Let's get to it. On October the 27th, KOL Paul Ninja shared his views on the need for autonomous monetary policy on Twitter. The following are the main views. Let's take a look at the Ethereum cycle first. High demand for staking means more Ethereum leveraged, which translates to high demand for Ethereum, which leads to more speculative activity, so on and so forth. Unfortunately, speculation has an expiry date. Market cycles and speculation is inevitable, and the whole flywheel must unwind in reverse with high volatility. To make Ethereum better money, we must dampen this volatility. Instead of incentivizing staking Ethereum while prioritizing fees, burns, and MBB are high, we need mechanisms that disincentivize staking Ethereum and making leveraging Ethereum expensive, which is the opposite of how things work now. Like central banks use interest rate, the lever the Ethereum protocol can use is staking rewards. Currently, validators are rewarded roughly 4%. This can dynamically respond to market conditions, deflation, priority fees, MEB, etc. I believe it can be largely autonomous. By the way, monetary policy is an awesome concept that has led to unprecedented prosperity for humanity. Ignoring all the great innovations over millennia is repeating the mistakes of down-earning gold bugs. To those saying, but the whole point of crypto is to have no monetary policy. I don't fully agree with them, and the point is to have an autonomous monetary policy. We must try and do better than having an arbitrary schedule with an arbitrary cap. This is doomed for failure long term. On October the 27th, DeFi researcher Ignis shared his views on the issue of do DeFi protocols really need a token to work on his personal Twitter. The following are his main points. Yesterday, I asked CT to name a DeFi protocol that wouldn't work without a token. Answers are eye-opening, ranging from all of them to could prove there is none. I argue that the majority of projects launch a token out of financial necessity. Token sale is a preferred and the easiest way to raise funds. Without the necessary funding, there wouldn't be many projects in the first place. Secondly, token serves a role for bootstrapping liquidity. Without liquidity mining, SushiSwap wouldn't have been able to attract any TVL or users since it didn't add any additional value to Uniswap's version 2. I wonder if Uniswap launched the Uni token because of the Sushi threat. Token is also used as a community building tool, but building a community around the token and not around the protocol itself is a short-term strategy. Your community will abandon you when the price plummets. Some DeFi protocols integrate their tokens into the core functioning mechanism. SNX, GNS, AMP, and Ruin facilitate liquidity creation and transfer, while USDD, USDN, UST, and FRAX are backed by native tokens. Lastly, OHM is bonding for liquidity. Yet many protocols could technically function without a token, such as DEXs, derivative exchanges, DEX aggregators, lending protocols, yield aggregators, collateralized stablecoins, and wallets. Their core business models don't depend on the token. Token for some of these protocols is a risk management tool. For example, MKR is a backstop for insolvency. Holders take risk of dilution to cover undercapitalized debt. This risk management extends to the protocol ownership. Overall, many protocols exist thanks to the token, from fundraising to liquidity attraction. They facilitate community building and redistribute revenue. But at the end, ensuring security of the protocol and governance gives the ultimate reason for a token to exist. On October the 28th, Vitalik published a blog titled The Revenue Evil Curve, a different way to think about prioritizing public goods funding. Here are the main points. 
This post attempts to provide a different way of analyzing hybrid goods on the spectrum between private and public, the revenue evil curve. We asked the question, what are the trade-offs of different ways to monetize a given project? And how much good can be done by adding external subsidiaries to remove the pressure to monetize? This is far from a universal framework. It assumes a mixed economy setting in a single monolithic community with a commercial market combined with subsidiaries from a central funder. It assumed a mixed economy setting in a single monolithic community with a commercial market combined with subsidies from a central funder. But it can still tell us a lot about how to approach funding public goods in crypto communities, countries, and many other real-world contexts today. The revenue evil curve of a product is a two-dimensional curve that plots the answer to the following question. How much harm would the product's creator have to inflict on their potential users and the wider community to earn N dollars of revenue to pay for building the product? The word evil here is absolutely not meant to imply that no quantity of evil is acceptable and that if you can't fund a project without committing evil, you should not do it at all. In many cases, this evil is very context dependent. Patenting is both extremely harmful and ideologically offensive within the crypto space and software more broadly. But this is less true in industries building physical goods. In physical goods industries, most people who realistically can create a derivative work of something patented are going to be large and well-organized enough to negotiate for a license. And capital costs means that the need for monetization is much higher and hence maintaining purity is harder. To what extent advertisements are harmful depends on the advertiser and the audience. If the podcaster understands the audience very well, ads can even be helpful. Whether or not the possibility to exclude even exists depends on property rights. Excludability and rival, excludability and rival factors are important dimensions of a good that have really important consequences for its ability to monetize itself and for answering the question of how much harm can be averted by funding it out of the public pot. But especially once more complex projects enter the fray, these two dimensions quickly start to become insufficient for determining how to prioritize funding. Most things are not pure public goods, there are some hybrid in the middle, and there are many dimensions on which they could become more or less public that do not easily map to exclusion. To continue hearing more, please subscribe to bishingventures.substack.com for daily newsletter, and follow Twitter account Bishing Ventures to hear the rest. This is Celine from Bishing Ventures, thank you for listening and we will see you tomorrow.